You're about to listen to a Gods and Movie Makers bonus episode. As promised in our season one finale, we will be releasing all of our bonus chats where we talk to our guests about pedagogy, research and film. We recommend listening to our main episode before this bonus chat for the full context of our discussion. For more information about the podcast, the films discussed and reading suggestions, head on over to our website godsandmoviemakers.com. And now for our bonus chat with Dr. Andrew Mark Henry. Hello to our lovely subscribers. We're back with Dr. Andrew Mark Henry, and we're here to talk a little bit further about Star Wars Episode 3 and pedagogy. So welcome back, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So would you use Star Wars in a classroom or any other teaching platform, perhaps as part of your research? And I'm thinking also very clearly about religion for breakfast. So would you ever incorporate some of the themes, maybe some elements of the story or something else into your kind of exposition of anything religion? Like I said in the main episode, I, I definitely love using Star Wars as an example of canonization and debates over canonization. I think the Harry Potter franchise is also a ripe example for that. Um, and I actually have a video on my YouTube channel about Star Wars canonization kind of being an example of why canon matters. Like you have skin in the game if you say this counts and this doesn't when it comes to a piece of content. There's an, another way that I use Star Wars in a pedagogical context, which is the idea of a spinoff story. So if you have like a main story, like the Gospels, what is the impetus, what is the motivation to write a spinoff? And the Gospels are a great example because there's so many side characters that just come in and out of the story, like Mary Magdalene, and then suddenly there's this guy named Nathaniel, and then there's this random guy named Nicodemus. Like these just side characters pop up for one scene or maybe maybe even a single sentence. And you can tell that the early Christians were fascinated by these characters because then they would go and write an entire apocryphal gospel about Pilate or Nicodemus or whoever. The Acts of Andrew, like this massive text about Andrew who's mentioned like barely at all. He's the brother of Peter, and that's about all that we know. So there's like this impetus to write spin-off literature. I don't know whether we should call it the fan fiction impulse or the, the spin-off impulse, but Star Wars is the same way where especially before the buyout from Disney, like I just read every single Star Wars novel ever written throughout the 90s and early 2000s because these character these characters would just show up really briefly. You would walk into the cantina in episode 4 and you see all these aliens and you see the the band mm-hmm. playing their cool little cantina band. And did you know there's an entire short story about that band? There's an entire short story about like the little guy that pops his head up briefly when you first walk into the cantina. So like there was this impulse to write stories about these side characters uh, that that continue to this day. I think like the Boba Fett was so fascinating because he's this really cool looking guy who's just kind of there with a few lines. And so there's an entire bounty hunter trilogy of novels written in the late 90s about Boba Fett. I would use it as an example of like pulling apart this, I don't know if it's a social or psychological impulse to just want to write spinoff literature about intriguing minor characters, mm. which is definitely something that's am- animating early Christian literati in the first few centuries. Yeah, it actually stays as part of Christianity for quite a while. And I've been thinking about writing something about saints plays and medieval mm. drama as fan fiction because you get a lot of plays about Paul plays about Mary the Virgin plays about Mary Magdalene and they focus just on their stories because there is this desire to know more about these characters so yeah the, the that impulse goes beyond early Christianity and it's an interesting way to use Star Wars as a way in to talk about where this exists in religion as well can I ask about your approach to public education in general Obviously, it matters to you with the channel that you have. So 
I'm interested in how you think about what sort of topics to cover, how you distill those topics down, thinking about how the public is going to best engage with those ideas. And I know you do sometimes reference popular culture, but not all the time. So there's clearly choices that you're making about when to draw from popular culture and yeah. when not to. So I, I kind of view my role with Religion for Breakfast as as a translator, like I'm translating academic work into publicly consumable work. You know, I don't like you know throwing shade at academic work. You know, it's, it's easy to make fun of how difficult it is to understand. It's it's easy to make fun of jargon, but I think there's there's a role for jargon. There's a there's a role for writing extremely dense pieces of content that is only understandable, like that is meant for you know the ten other people in your field. If I'm if I'm going to write a peer reviewed article on like how is the word magic used in early Christian circles, like I I'm trying to write to the ten other people in the world that care about that topic, and we're going to try to wrestle with the theoretical concepts of that, but. I think there's enough in those peer-reviewed articles that is interesting enough to a public audience, and it requires somebody with graduate training in religious studies to try to translate it into the way pe normal people talk <laughs> and understand content. I, I use the analogy of religion for breakfast is like chatting with your friend at a coffee shop table, and someone asks you a question like, how is the word magic used by late Roman ritual practitioners like where does this word magic come from and i wouldn't respond well you know in the mid 20th century there was an anthropologist named bronislaw malinowski who then talks about magic science and religion as three modes of thinking you know like i'd I be like okay so the word magic comes from the greek word magia and i just try to talk very conversationally so like every religion for breakfast video is just a very conversational coffee shop chat about, about a question that a friend just asked and so if someone's like, oh, what's what's spinoff literature all about? Oh, let me tell you, a good analogy would be Star Wars, and then use that analogy to then talk about early Christian canonization. So it's kind of a coffee shop chat. It's important for me to make content that is truly for the public. You know, we're all scholars here, and we've seen a lot of scholarly podcasts that say they're for the public, but they're just not. Their audience is for other academics. And unless you are talking in just conversational tone, talking about something that pe somebody's actually going to click on, it, it's not really for the public. So Religion for Breakfast, I'm just like constantly thinking, how can I simplify this without making it overly simplified? Like we have that word oversimplification for a reason. We have that word overgeneralization for a reason. But I'm very, very comfortable trying to simplify ideas. So I'm trying to write this script on Taoism, and it's incredibly difficult. And I'm going to throw a little bit of shade at Taoist scholars that they have not done a good job of providing publicly available explainers about their field of research, because I'm diving deep into books that are titled Intro to Taoism. And as someone who is trained in religious studies, I come away completely befuddled by the, by the book. And I'm like, this is seriously what's being taught to undergrads? Like, I can barely understand this text. Uh, and so as I was like digging through these intro to Taoism books, I finally found a scholar who used the analogy of a vine. He's like, Taoism is like a vine. It just twists and turns as the history has gone over the past 2,500 years. And like a vine, it's entangled in Chinese culture, in the Chinese calendar, uh, Chinese uh ritual festivals, uh, Chinese folk religion, where you can't even say one god is Taoist, one god is not Taoist. Like, it's just, it's just entangled. And I was like, boom, it clicked. Just using that analogy helped me understand Taoism better. And I'm just constantly, you know, again, trying to translate this academic work and just using analogies like that or using a very simple metaphor of some sort can oftentimes just help a, a concept click for a public audience. I'm really fascinated with your earlier answer about how you would use Star Wars as well. And it was much less about the kind of ideas within the universe, but about us as readers. I think this is such a, an interesting approach to think 
or what is it that an audience takes away from this idea and how do they engage with it and using some kind of key into that I think you've just done it really beautifully there with the this kind of Taoist thing as well and I find sometimes these things aren't necessary the content isn't terribly interesting but what it does and its positioning culture leads us into a very particular set of way of thinking or helps something become intelligible yeah a lot of times it's just using like an activity you would use in an undergraduate classroom and trying to turn it into a video so like i would do this star wars canon thing for students like debate okay if george lucas were to tweet actually no anakin is the chosen one that prophecy was not a failure would george lucas's tweet count as canon or does he no longer have control of the IP now that like it's out there? You know, it's kind of the death of the author argument. Um, so if one of the letters of Paul is actually a forgery and several are, you know, does it count as canon? Because the Apostle Paul didn't really say that. It was a guy saying it's the Apostle Paul. And obviously for the vast majority of Christians today, it's still canon. So like canon is just like this really, uh, it's, it's a difficult topic to kind of wrap your head around it until you have skin in the game. Oh, that would be a big deal if George Lucas no longer could dictate canon. And it's only what? the corporation Disney is is pumping out and and like what what gets the stamp of approval who are the authorizing authorities that make something canon and what's not and it's hard to really come to these realizations until you're kind of debating it and writing on the chalkboard okay three original movies canon you know the droids cartoon from the late 80s not canon and then try to parse it out on the the chalkboard and you can do that in a video with mm. you know really visually get these ideas across yeah, I think it's similar with you already noted Harry Potter, very similar with J.K. Rowling, and because she does sometimes tweet out or respond to fan questions, and those responses are not always welcome. Yeah, and, and not accepted as canon. Exactly. It's an interesting approach to think about how we receive and make meaning hmm. from texts. Can we say that head canon is theology? <laughs> it's definitely a hermeneutics of some sort. Yeah, I was just thinking because even just talking earlier about oh, this is my reading of the thing, and you two had something different. It was something about the prophecy or who is—is is it an authentic prophecy? All these other kind of things. I think, yeah, actually, having rewatched the film, I don't think that a lot of the things I think about it are necessarily supported by that film. <laughs> so I've clearly created some kind of head canon without really knowing about it there's that other element of being a an interested audience member and when something has maybe issues or gaps or there are things that are unclear if you're interested you're filling in these gaps and creating mm -hmm. kind of meaning out of unknowns or things that aren't on screen in this case yeah and how certain texts are more important to your your theology or your interpretation, you know, like, I don't know, like the, the book of Romans comes up all the time, much more than the book of Philemon. So there's there's the greatest hits in the New Testament for Christian theology. And in the same way with Star Wars, you have greatest hits and then other pieces of content that just don't factor in as much into the Star Wars lore. They're either conveniently ignored or conveniently mined for future content. So like the new Obi-Wan show on Disney Plus, you know, draws a lot of inspiration and a lot of story beats from Revenge of the Sith, but it kind of like uh, doesn't really go too deep. It's like, okay, this thing worked from Revenge of the Sith, so now let's use this in the Obi-Wan TV show. We had Michelle Fletcher on to talk about Terminator, and she related a lot to by the time you get to the fourth Terminator movie, it's drawing so heavily on the previous Terminator movies that she uses it as a way in to think about Revelation and how Revelation is drawing on previous texts. And 
I was just thinking actually that the prequels for Star Wars draw so heavily on the original trilogy in terms of the costuming, in terms of what characters end up there. So there's really no reason for C-3PO and R2-D2 to be in the prequels at all, but they're there because fans like them. The fact that George Lucas found himself being asked really often about how Obi-Wan was still sort of present after he kind of disappeared slash died. And so he inserts this line into the end of the third film in order to explain that this is something that they're learning. Mm. So, so much costume detail in particular for me really stuck out. It's even worse than the sequel trilogy, though. Like the prequel trilogy actually has some originality. Mm. Some of the, the completely original spaceships, completely original sound design, uh, new aliens. Some of the costuming is extremely different. The sequel trilogy is just completely derivative in in some ways, like insulting to the fans with like the, the spaceships look no different. The, the, the costuming is almost no different. C-3PO and R2-D2 are like completely mm. vestigial characters. Like they, they're doing absolutely nothing for the story. Uh, and it, it's it's kind of a shame. Like there is just so much potential that's squandered there. And, and they're like completely um, in terms of like intertextuality. It's like it's just nothing but intertext mm. in those sequel movies uh at Mm. least the prequels are are telling a they're telling backstory but they're telling a a new story yeah but they're telling backstory through you know luke when we first meet him on tatooine he looks like he looks those are just the clothes that he wears on tatooine and they're designed a certain way to evoke certain things about luke's character and position him in a learner role compared to obi-wan but then when we get to the prequels all the Jedi just wear what Luke wears before he even knows what the Jedi really are. It's it's sort of strange. So I was thinking in terms of what you've been saying and also what Michelle was saying, that they could be an interesting way to look at how things that texts that purport to come before Mm. actually are drawing so much on things that have already happened. And we get this a lot, I think, in prophecy texts in the Hebrew Bible in particular, where they're writing as if they are foretelling a future event, but yeah. actually they're drawing on things that have already happened. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think we can draw it more or less there, unless there's anything else you want to discuss or bring up, Andrew, while you're here. Yeah. No, I think we covered everything. I, I think we did cover a lot. We're probably going to have annoyed some Star Wars cool. fans, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, rest assured, any angry Star They'll Wars survive. fans that I'm as big, if not bigger, of a fan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, being, a, being able to criticize something, I, I can criticize it because it has caused me so much disconsternation over the, so much trauma over the years watching these really bad movies being published. I, I do think laying your cards on the table like, I have read everything as a pretty like establishing yeah. your fandom bona fides i i, I literally <laughs> read every single and i say literally literally yeah. i literally read every single novel every ever published up until 2010 and and then like i got too annoyed at the expanded universe they made story decisions that were so stupid and made me so angry as like i'm no longer reading these novels oh. so <laughs> wow thanks so much andrew this is good pedagogy chat we appreciate it thanks for having me So thanks again to our guest, Andrew, for his extra time today. As always, you can follow us at GodMovPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also contact us or donate on our website, GodsAndMovieMakers.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing. Until next time. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner.